Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today and for all of you uh, who are online as well. Yesterday, I met a, uh, a young couple, and they told me that they uh, watch from 29 Palms, California, because he is in the United States Marine Corps, and that's where he's stationed. So thank you for your service, and so we are so glad that you're out there. And uh, we're blessed that you, all of you, and all of those who are online are part of our South Bay family. You know, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been in a series here called Bodybuilding. And it's, it's all about how we can build each other up. And it goes without saying that fundamental to our faith, or fundamental to who we are, is our faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith, your faith, is the bedrock of who we are. The problem that we run into is that our faith can wane over time. It goes through ups and downs, and it can be tossed to and fro. And it reminds me that our faith, it really begins with us. It begins, your faith begins with you. My faith begins with me. And that's what I want to speak with you about today. So grab a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7, which is the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. And we'll get back to that in just a second. You can also follow along on our app. And I would always suggest that you get a pad of paper and a pen so you can take some notes. Now, um, when I was a little boy, I heard a story that le left such a lasting impression on me that I never forgot it. Now, I don't remember where I first heard the story, whether it was my first grade teacher at Malabar Elementary, Miss Nunez, whether she was the one that told me that story, whether it was my parents or whether it was watching the story on my little black and white television set that we had. Um, but it's a story that impacted me greatly. And, uh, and I want to tell you what that story is. It is the story of the three little pigs. Um, in case you forgot it, I want to remind you how the story goes. Once upon a time, there were three little pigs. And each one of them decided to build their own home. The first pig, the first little pig, was laid back, so he built his home out of straw. He was laid back, must have been from Hawaii, which is where a lot of people are kind of just laid back, and so I gave him a name, you can call him Kalua Pig, all right? <laughs> the second pig wasn't quite as hang loose as the first pig, and so he built his home out of sticks. And then there was pig number three, and he was like the Gamorians in Star Wars who didn't mess around, and so he built his home out of bricks. Well, one day, the big bad wolf came calling, and he went to the first house, and you remember what he said? He snarled, little pig, little pig, let me come in. And you remember what the pig said in response to the wolf? He said, not by the chin of my chinny-chin-chin, not by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin will I let you in. And then the big wolf replied, and then I'll huff, and then I'll puff, and then I'll blow your house down. And that's exactly what he did. And then the Kahlua pig hightailed it out of his broken-down house to the second house. And the big bad wolf followed him to the second house, which was made out of sticks. 
And he growled outside, little pigs, little pigs, let me come in. And the little pigs inside were terrified and they said, not by the hair on our chinny chin chin will we let you in. And the big bad wolf thundered and then I'll huff and I will puff and I will blow your house down. And he did. And the two little pigs were terrified and so they skedaddled out of their house, their broken down house, and they ran to the third house, which was made out of bricks. And the big bad wolf followed them over and he said to them, little pigs, little pigs, let me come in. And the little pigs replied, not by the hair on our chinny chin chin will we let you come in. And the wolf replied, and then I'll huff, and then I'll puff, and I'll blow your house down. And he huffed, and he puffed, and he huffed, and he puffed, and he couldn't blow the house down because it was made out of bricks. And then Wolfie climbed up to the top of the house, and he got to the roof of the house, and he went to the chimney, and he squeezed himself into the chimney, and he slid down to the very bottom into a cauldron of boiling hot water. And that evening, the three little pigs had wolf soup for dinner. And they lived happily ever after in the brick house. The end. Isn't that a great story? <laughs> That's, that story has really um, impacted my life in a great way. And like I said, I, I, I never forgot it. And I think, I think every parent ought to make sure their kids know that story, right? Every child ought to know that story. And uh, in fact, I want to ask Pastor James to come out here for a second with his, with his wife, Darren. I think Pastor Darren and his wife, uh, Pastor J James and his wife, Darren, uh, you ought to teach that story to your kids. Now, I don't know if you know this, but for years, Pastor James was the youth pastor of our ministry, and Darren served right alongside him. And for years, they have served, and they have been like a father and a mother to hundreds of our youth over all these years. Well, guess what? Now they're going to be a father and a mother. Wow. Isn't that great? Yeah. Later on this summer, they're going to have um, a baby. And we know, the doctors told them, we know that one is going to be a boy. <laughs> and it's very possible that the other one might be a boy as well, but the other one might be a girl because they're having twins. Isn't that great? So I, I don't know if you want to share yeah, any thoughts about that. Well, church, we just want to say thank you for the warm wishes and the applause. But, um, you know, we couldn't wait to tell you guys because you guys are our, our family. But if we're honest with you, um, you know, for Darren and I, this was, um, we just were a little torn about sharing it in this way and a little hesitant because we know that for many of you, um, this type of news is something that you have yet to be able to share, and this is news that you're hoping to have for yourselves, and yet it hasn't come. And we know how hard that can be, and how disappointing you can feel, and how hurt it could hear this news, even though maybe you are excited, and you're happy, and you're genuinely you know, glad that this is happening for other people, but for you and your, you know, your family, you're struggling with it. And, we know that that's a painful thing because Darren and I have struggled through this as well. I mean, we've been married for a while. We have, you know, this has been a long time coming and we had a diagnosis of infertility and um, 
yeah, we weren't quite sure if this was going to be God's will for us. And, and, and we, we struggled through it. We, we felt alone a lot of times, and we, we questioned God. We were frustrated with him. Um, and there were all sorts of different emotions. And so for, for some of you, we, we totally get it. And we totally know that this might not be easy news to take in. But we share a little bit of that because we, we hope and we pray that we can be an encouragement to some of you and to serve you in some sort of way. Because for Darren and I, we realized that we had one or two choices. We could either allow this to divide us and isolate us from friends and family and other people that were going through these tremendous, exciting moments and even cause us to turn away from God, to get upset with him and mad with him. And, and just throw our fists up in the air at him and ask him why he's not giving us something that we begged for and we pleaded for and we prayed for. But Darren and I decided instead of running away from God, we needed to run to him, that he needed to be our firm foundation uh, because we needed that peace that was beyond all understanding. And in running to him, he provided us with people, even people within the church, a community to support us and encourage us. Uh, he brought us closer together. And we just, we just learned what it truly means to have faith in the Lord. And in church, we just wanted to share this, uh, our, stor- our story and our struggle, because we wanted those that are struggling in the same way to know that you're not alone, um, that we have walked in your shoes and, and we feel your hurt and we feel your pain. And as best as we can, we want to make ourselves available to you and to pray with you, to listen to you, and, and do our best in helping you not run away from God, but run to him, because we believe that without a shadow of doubt, regardless if God had answered our prayers in the way we wanted to or not, that when we look at the cross and we look at the amount of love that God has for us, that there's no way that he doesn't know what's best and he loves us the most. And, and we want to help you guys cling to that truth and have that hope in him as well. And so uh, we definitely are going to need all the prayers that we can possibly get, though. Uh, there's still a long way to go, uh, still a lot of progress to be made, a lot of development that's still happening, and so we would love your prayers. And I heard that becoming a parent truly changes your life, and you don't get any sleep, and we got double coming, and so we, we <laughs> could use double the prayer and the encouragement. And one quick surprise that even Pastor Gary, I don't think he knows yet, but we did find out the second gender. We're having two boys, and so wow. please pray for us. Uh, <laughs> twin boys are going to, uh, we're excited for it, but at the same time, yeah, we, we would appreciate all of your love and support, and especially your prayers. And so, Pastor Gary, church, if you guys want to mind, could you pray for us, please? Yeah, for sure. You know, um, we really rejoice and celebrate and have a little bit of idea of some of the things that they went through, and I know it was really difficult for them, and as it, as it is, if you have struggled with infertility, and it could even be that as a single person, you struggle with your singleness because God hasn't brought someone to your life. I mean, that was that was my story for a long, long time, and uh, I, I so appreciate these two because, you know, in sharing their story, what they were really more concerned about was those of you who might find this kind of difficult news to swallow because you've struggled with this, and so. I, I truly appreciate that, and that their heart is for you, and, and more importantly, God's heart is for you, and I hope that you remember that. But uh, let's lift them up to the Lord, and um, if you feel comfortable, you want to extend your hand toward them, you can. Uh, those of you who are also watching from the Face Center or the lobby, you can do the same thing. Uh, for those of you who are watching online, you can just extend out your hand toward them, just as a show of, of support that we are lifting them and their babies up 
to the Lord. Okay, so let's do that. Let's pray for James and Darren and the little boys. Father, we just praise you and thank you so much for the gift of life. And Father, we, we can't even imagine all, just how difficult of a journey this has been for James and Darren. And uh, Father, now, now that we see a little light at the end of the tunnel, thank you so much for giving them these two, the gift of these two little boys uh, inside of Darren. And Father, we want to lift them up to you. Thank you so much. You were the one who created them before the foundations of the world. You allowed them uh, to be in, inside of Darren and, and now to grow. And we ask God, we lift them up to you and ask, Father, that they would continue to grow strong and healthy inside of her. We pray that everything would develop well and that their pregnancy would go without a, a hitch, without any complications, and the delivery would be the same. And Father, these two little boys would come out and be godly men like their dad. And um, Father, thank you for their heart. I know that uh, their heart for those who might find this kind of news difficult because they've struggled. Lord, thank you for always standing. Thank you for always standing with James and Darren. And Lord, thank you. Let that be a reminder that you will, you will stand with us in all of our struggles, no matter what we go through. And I pray today that for all those who are discouraged, for whatever reason, for whatever disappointments and storms that they face in their life, God, um, cause us, stir in us, that we would run to you and not run away from you. So again, thank you, Father, so much for James and Darren and for the two little boys. We just lift them up into your care, and we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Wow, I had no idea. That's uh, awesome. I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a story in the Bible that is very similar to the three little pigs. Uh, it was, and it was told by none other than the Lord himself in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. That's why I asked you to turn there. And I want to read it. It's only four verses long, but it's very powerful. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Does that sound kind of familiar? And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The first thing I want to point out to you, and this is the story that I think is so much like the story of the three little pigs, but the first thing I want to point out to you is that every story has a villain, right? Every story has a villain. Star Wars had Darth Vader. Batman had the Joker. The bad boy in the early Marvel movies was Thanos. And the three little pigs had the big bad wolf. You see, in God's economy, however, the villain is always Satan, but in this particular story, Jesus' story, the villain is the rain, the wind, and the floods. And Jesus didn't mean literal rain and literal, a literal flood or a literal wind. And, and these, these three things can represent divine judgment, but he can, it can also mean, it could mean something else. It could be metaphorically, it could speak of the storms in our lives, various storms. And the storms can sink our faith. You know, soon after I became a Christian at Pepperdine, the, the young man that, that led me to Christ, his name was Dennis Lowe, he was my dorm mate, he was the one who led me to Jesus and baptized me 50 years ago this year, 
baptized me 50 years ago, um, Dennis told me that now that I was a Christian, and I'll never forget it, he told me that now that I was a Christian, the devil would do, make every attempt to draw me away from Jesus. He said, the devil's going to work and try to draw you away from Jesus. And in other words, he was going to, the devil was going to come and huff and he was going to puff and try to blow my faith down to cause me to backslide and fall away from Christ. Well, at the time, I couldn't have imagined such a thing. I mean, I loved Jesus almost right away. And I, I thought, how can anyone stop being a Christian after you've come to know the Lord? And so I couldn't really wrap my head around what he was saying and so I kind of readied myself and I kind of prepared myself and I would walk around campus kind of looking over my shoulder like, what, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? And it never really happened. I mean, I got through Pepperdine okay and, and I went on uh, and to get a job and I started growing in my faith. And then some years later, I remember hearing a message at church and I don't remember exactly who, um, who was preaching the message, but I remember hearing the message and the pastor told about how every year, thousands of Christ followers fall away from the faith. And it just really startled me. He said, they, and they become a statistic. And as I continued to grow in my faith, I began to witness firsthand exactly what he was talking about. As I saw my friends begin to fall away from Christ, I saw it with my own eyes. And I noticed that people fell away for a variety of different reasons. Some fell away simply because they got busy. Maybe they got busy with school. They're studying so much and they fall away. Or they got busy with a relationship, a significant other. And that relationship became more important than God and so they fell away. Or maybe it was a career and they got so busy with their jobs. Or maybe they got busy with, maybe they got married. And then they had kids and they got married and they got busy raising a family. And, and you could see it coming. You could see it coming. First, they would just stop going to church. Or maybe they would stop going to group, to small group, to their youth group, or to their singles group. And then they would drift away completely. You could almost see it coming. Others, I noticed, fell away because they became ensnared in sin or because of the things of this world. One of the first times I witnessed this up close and personal was with a good friend. I'll call him Robert. It's not his real name. But we were all part of a Bible study together, and Robert really loved the Lord. I mean, he had such a tender heart for, for God, and yet he loved the Lord, but Robert also loved his pot. He loved his drugs. And we did everything we could to help him to stop, and we did everything we could to help him stay on that, walk on that straight and narrow path, keep him accountable. But despite all of our pleadings, he walked away from the Lord, and it broke my heart. And I wonder, I think about him often, even today, and wonder where he's at and whether he's walking with the Lord. Finally, I noticed that a lot of people fall away from the faith. They fell away from the faith because, because they encountered adversity and trials and problems in their life. And they come in all shapes and sizes. Maybe it, was, maybe it was divorce. Maybe it was abandonment. Maybe it was rejection. Maybe it was just hurt. Maybe it was loneliness or depression. Um, and I get it, right? These things can really do a number on our faith. I saw people fall away because of sickness, because they had health problems. And maybe many of them couldn't understand why God would allow this to happen. Why, why would God do this to them? Why would God do this to their loved one? I saw people walk away from God because of the loss they experienced. Maybe it was the loss, loss of knowing that they could never have, start a family. And loss is a big one, right? It could be the loss of a home 
a loss of a career, a loss of a job, a loss of a friend, a loss of a mom or a dad, a loss of a husband or a wife, or worse yet, the loss of a child. You know, the the love of Christ then would be replaced by anger, by bitterness. So often when we suffer, as Pastor James pointed out, so often when when we suffer, we encounter adversity and trials, we will run away, we will run from God rather than to him. We will run from him rather than to him as if it's all his fault. In my lifetime, I have seen the faith of probably hundreds of people what be wiped out by storms, by the storms of this life. And if, and if our faith is the bedrock of who we are, if it's the bedrock of who we are, then how do we keep from becoming a statistic? That's what I want to talk about today. How do you keep from falling away from your faith when the storms come? And this is such an important question because, because the storms will come. There is a big bad wolf. Actually, there is a devil. And here's the good news. Jesus answered that question for us in this passage. And the answer is very simple. If you take a look at Matthew 7.25 again, the answer is right here. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat, that, beat on that house. Let me point out a couple things for you. And these are important for you to understand what the passage is saying, what Jesus said here. First, the word house is analogous to our faith. This is not speaking of a literal house, but this is speaking of our faith. It's, it's, it's a metaphor. Second, the word beat in the Greek means to slam. It means to slam. Thus, Jesus said that the storms of this life will literally slam your faith. And it is not a matter of if, it is only a matter of when. And the when he will, our, our faith will be slammed is that it's constant. It is ongoing. It is never-ending. We are slammed constantly by trials from the time that we are young until the time that we are old and God takes us home. We are slammed by storms. It doesn't end. Third, the word founded in this verse means to lay a foundation. It means to lay a foundation. And fourth, the Greek word for rock is petra. It is petra with an A at the end. And it refers, petra refers to a mass of connected rock, a mass of connected rock. Now, there's another Greek word for rock, and it is the word petros with an O, not an A. Petros. Petros is a rock or a boulder that stands alone on its own. Here's an example of Petros right here. Here are these two boulders that stand alone. And that's my daughter Kylie right in the middle of it. Don't ask me what she's doing in there. I wonder that myself, right? But this is Petros, right? Two self-standing boulders. Petros, on the other hand, which is what we see in this verse, is a mass of connected rock. Here's an example of what Petros might look like. This is located in the city of Petra, which is an ancient city in the kingdom of Jordan in the Middle East. Jordan is that first country adjacent to Israel, just east of it. And there in the middle of Jordan is this city called Petra. And as you can see, carved into this mass of connected rock, Petra, is this incredible edifice called Al-Khazne, or the treasury. And it once served as a mausoleum and tomb for an ancient king. This city has been there for, they say, 
2,400 years. Here's a close-up shot of El Cosne. Petro was once the thriving capital of the Nabataeans, who were a, a nomadic desert people. city was made up, and there's more to the city than just this particular structure, because it goes on and on for quite a long time here. But the city was made up of, of hand-sculpted caves and temples and tombs carved into this pink sandstone rock. Petra has also been called the Rose City because of the color of the rock. And it has withstood rain and wind and earthquakes and floods for thousands of years. In 1985, it was designated by UNESCO as a World Heritage Site. And in 2007, it was voted one of the seven wonders of the world. And Smithsonian Magazine said that it is one of the 28 places you should see before you die. And so I want to see this place before I die. So we added it to our uh, Holy Land trip in November. It's an extension of our Holy Land trip. And if we can get 15 people from our trip to go, then we're going to go to Jordan and Petra to see this incredible site. And if you'd like to join us and go with us, then please let us know. Just reach out to us at the church and we'll get you the information and let you know what it costs. So now that I've given you the definitions for all of the words in Matthew 7, 25, take a look at 25, verse 25 again. Jesus said that the faith that will not fail, the faith that will not fall when it is slammed by the storms of this life is that faith which is founded on Petra, founded on the rock, and not just any rock, not just a boulder, but a mass of connected rock. When your faith is like Petra, it will be immovable. And that begs the question, what does true biblical faith look like? What does that kind of faith look like? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because the answer, again, is right here. Take a look at verse 24. First, Jesus said that everyone who hears these words of mine, these words refers to his words, but it also refers in general to the word of God. Whoever hears these words of mine and who does them, in other words, who obeys God's word, they will be like a wise man who built his house on the Petra, right? Thus, true biblical faith is faith that is rooted, it is rooted in the knowledge of God's word and obedience to God's word. That's what this is, right? You know, back in the 1940s, uh, these two men were best friends. This is Charles Templeton on the left and Billy Graham on the right. They were best friends. You all know who Billy Graham is. They were probably in their late 20s, early 30s at the time. And they were best friends. They became best friends because they, they, they were traveling evangelists. They would go all around the world and speak to thousands of people, preaching the gospel to thousands of people. They went on to start an organization called Youth for Christ, which is still around today. And then one day, they both began to experience a crisis of faith. Kind of started with Charles Templeton. And they began to question the authority of Scripture. He began to wonder, wonder whether or not the Bible was true. In 1948, he enrolled at Princeton Theological Seminary, which even back then had a reputation for being liberal as a Bible uh, school. Princeton went on to have a profound effect on Charles Templeton because he came to believe by the time he graduated, even after the first semester, he came to believe that the Bible was 
antiquated, that it was filled with errors, that it wasn't really the Word of God. At the end of his first semester, he and Billy met up just to hang out. And he told Billy, he said, quote, Billy, you're 50 years out of date. People no longer accept the Bible as being the inspired Word of God as you do. In another conversation he had with Billy Graham, Charles said to him, quote, it's simply not possible any longer to believe. For instance, the biblical account of creation. I don't believe the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days a few thousand years ago, Charles said. It has evolved over millions of years. It is not a matter of speculation. It is a demonstrable fact, unquote. And so Charles came to believe in evolution as opposed to creation, which is taught in the Bible. And Charles' words didn't help Billy Graham because he was struggling with his own doubts. He was wondering himself whether or not the Bible was true, whether he could trust the Bible, whether he could believe the Bible. Well, one day, Billy was invited to speak at a retreat at Forest Home. Christian Conference Center in San Bernardino Mountains. We've taken, Pastor James has taken our, hundreds of our youth to, to, to Forest Home. One day, Billy was invited to speak there, and he really didn't want to go. He writes in his autobiography, I really didn't want to go because, because I was tormented with doubt on my own. I, how could I teach them the Bible when I wasn't even sure I believed it? But he felt obligated to go because of, because of who invited him. After one of the evening sessions, Billy tormented, wandered off into the hillside. And he knew he needed to settle this matter once and for all. And he finally made a decision. He, he finally made up his mind what he was going to do right there in the middle of the brush next to a tree stump with his Bible in his hand. Billy dropped to his knees and he prayed this prayer, wrote in, wrote in his autobiography. He prayed, Father, I'm going to accept this as your word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be in your inspired word. I accept it by faith. I will believe it. The story goes that with tears streaming down his faith, face, Billy returned to the camp, even though his, all of his questions remained unanswered. And from that day forward, he accepted by faith that the Bible was the insp inspired and errant word of God, and it changed him. And it changed the world through, through him. As for Charles Templeton, he graduated from Princeton Seminary. And it was long after that that he left ministry altogether, divorced his wife, and he walked away from God. In 2001, two years before he died, Charles Templeton wrote one of the most tragic books ever published. It was titled, Farewell to God. My reasons for rejecting Christianity. You know what the issue was with Charles Templeton? You know what the problem was? He fell short in three areas in the area of notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Those are three Latin words. Let me explain them to you. First, notitia refers to the content of your faith versus the content of your faith. In other words, what you believe, right? What do you believe? What do you believe? As Christians, the content of our faith is the Bible. This is the content of our faith. And we believe what it says. We believe what it says about God. We believe what it says about Jesus. We believe what it says about his deity, about his humanness. We believe what it says about the Holy Spirit. 
We believe what the Bible says about man and woman and marriage. We believe what it says about sin and redemption. We believe what it says about the church and how God uses the church to reach the world. We believe what it says about how we ought to live our lives and how we ought to conduct ourselves. We believe what it says about our purpose in this life. We believe what it says about how we ought to preach the gospel. We believe what it says about the last days, that one day the church will be raptured and taken to heaven, and then Christ will come after the battle of Armageddon. We believe what it says about everything. The problem was Templeton didn't. He didn't believe what it says. This up-and-coming evangelist, in fact, they said that, that Templeton was more prolific as a preacher than Billy Graham. This up-and-coming evangelist didn't believe that God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. He didn't believe in heaven. And at the end, he didn't even believe in God. His notitia was a spiritual wasteland. You see, true biblical faith begins with content. What do you believe? What do you believe? And if your content is messed up, your faith will be messed up, right? So let me ask you something. What is the content of your faith? What do you believe, right? You've heard people say, well, as long as you believe something, that's all that matters. No, it matters what you believe, right? It matters what you believe. Sadly, the devil has been working overtime to get us to believe a bunch of lies, because he is the father of lies. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. More and more pastors today are teaching junk. They've strayed away from the truth of God's word and they are teaching junk and they're leading their congregations to do the same thing. If there was ever a time and we need to know what this book says and we need to live by it, today's the day. We need to know what this book says because the way you recognize error is by knowing the truth. That's how you know what error is, by knowing what the truth is. Several years ago, we sent a group of our students, I think I've told this story before, but I'm gonna, I'll share with you with a different twist, but several years ago, we sent a bunch of our college students to a, to a Christian conference, a missions conference, very famous conference, and I was so excited, I was hoping that some of them would come back wanting to go on missions, and, and when they returned, I was so excited, I met with them, and I said, tell me about your trip, and I was shocked at what they told me about what some of the speakers taught, what some of the speakers said. And after they told me what some of the speakers taught at this conference, I made a commitment that we would never send anyone to that conference again. And we have it. They had the conference recently, I believe. And we, we didn't send anyone, and we never will, to that conference. But you know what excited me the most? You know what excited me about this whole thing? The good thing that came out of this whole story is that our students were sufficiently grounded in the truth of God's word that when they heard the error, they recognized it immediately. As soon as they heard it, they knew that something was wrong because they knew the truth. And I was so excited that our students were able to pick that up. You see, bodybuilding begins with you. It begins with us. It begins with me. I mean, I can't do this for you. You can't do this for somebody else. You can only do this for yourself, which means in order for your faith to be like Petrus, you got to read this book. you got to study this book. you got to know this book. And then you got to do what it says. Right? That's how we get there. That's how we are able to withstand all the storms in this life. Second, Templeton failed in the area of ascensus. Failed in the area of, he failed in the area of notitia, the content of our faith. They also failed in the area of ascensus. Ascensus is the conviction that the content of our faith is true. It is the conviction that the content of our faith is true. Templeton lacked any sense of conviction that the Bible was true. 
when he told Billy that he didn't believe in the biblical creation, Billy's response was, I believe it. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. That's why I believe it. That's conviction. That's a census. And con conviction is absolutely critical to our faith because conviction is what leads us to act on what we know to be true. It moves us to action. As you may know, millions of people will say that they believe in God. They used to take a, a Gallup survey every year. And they would ask Americans, do you believe in God? And every year the poll would come back. 90% of the people would say they believe in God. Well, I never believe the polls because I can't believe that 90% of Americans believe in God, not when I watch how people live. You see, if you believe in something, then you're going to live like you believe in something. Today, I would imagine that if they took that same poll, a whole lot less than 90% would say they believe in God. I think that number's gone way down. But more importantly, you can't say you believe in God and then not live like it. And even the church is filled with people who say, they believe in God. Oh, yeah, I believe in God, sure. Oh, I believe in God, right? But they don't live like it, right? They don't live like it because they lack conviction, right? And that's why a census is so important. You know what Jesus said about this? You know what he, Jesus said about people who say they believe in God, but they don't live like it? In the same chapter, Matthew chapter 7, just a few verses up from where we're at, verse 21, Jesus said, get this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is one of the most terrifying verses in the entire Bible. One of the scariest verses in the entire Bible. Do you know why? Because it tells us that not everybody who thinks they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everybody who thinks they're going to heaven is going to go to heaven. That's scary. You think, oh, you, you think you're a Christian, but not everybody who thinks you're a Christian is going to go to heaven. You see, true biblical faith is characterized by conviction that moves you to action. You just can't say, oh, I believe. No, if, if you believe, then you have to have the conviction. And if you have conviction, that will move you to action. And then you begin to live like it. Finally, Templeton fell short in the area of fiducia. Notitia, census, and fiducia. Fiducia refers to a personal commitment. First, to a personal commitment. You see, it isn't sufficient to have the right content and conviction. You must also have a commitment. You must also make a commitment. That's fiducia. In 1974, there's a man named Richard Davis. And Richard Davis used this material. We call it ballistic nylon. And he used ballistic nylon to create an all-Kevlar body armor vest. And to prove that it worked, that, it, that a bullet wouldn't penetrate the vest, he wore the vest. He put it on, and he asked his employees to shoot him with a gun, with a real gun. And they shot at him 200 times. And he lived to tell about it. Not a single bullet penetrated that, that vest. And so he knew right away he was onto something. So he started to manufacture bulletproof vests. And when, when America heard about it, every law enforcement uh, uh, agency in the country wanted in including the LAPD, which ordered 5,000 vests for its officers. And after the delivery was made to the LAPD, every cop in the department was given a bulletproof vest. Here's your bulletproof vest. Here's your bulletproof vest. 
But here's the thing. When they gave out the bulletproof vest to every officer in the LAPD, they didn't make it mandatory. They didn't say, this is mandatory. You must wear it. Because they knew, especially in the summertime, it's kind of heavy. And you put it on, and it's, it's, it'll make you sweat. Right? But they said, so it's, it's optional. It's up to you. But we highly recommend it because it can save your life. Well, one day, Bob Vernon, who is the assistant chief of police of the LAPD, when I worked at City Hall many years ago, told me this story. He said that one night he received a call at home uh, informing him that one of his officers had been shot. Back then, they didn't have beepers and they didn't have cell phones, and so he got a call on his landline at home. And immediately, he, he rolled on the call. He went down to the, rushed down to the California hospital in downtown Los Angeles. Here's, here's what happened. What he, Bob told me what happened was that his partner, this office, two officers, they rolled on a call, and they started taking fire almost immediately. And one of the officers took a bullet right to the chest, and he went down, right to the chest, and he went down. And as he, as he lay there, his, his partner is panicking. He's trying to, he's try, he got his revolver out. He's looking for where the bad guys are. And he's trying to check on his partner. He's also trying to call a backup. I need backup. Officer down. Officer down. Where are these bad guys? Meanwhile, his partner, who is down on the ground, is saying, I'm hit. I'm hit. I'm dying. Tell my wife I love her. Tell my kids I love them. And so his partner is checking on his, he's checking on the guy that's been shot. And he looks and he doesn't see any blood. He said, this is strange, there's no blood. But he shot in the chest. And he looks a little bit more carefully. He says, hey, you're wearing your vest. I'm wearing my vest. And then he separates the shirt where he was shot. And there was the bullet sticking right out of the vest. He said, you dummy, here's the bullet. You're not dying. And the officer stood up and said, well, then let's go get those guys. Bob said it was the funniest thing to hear them talk about this story in the in the hospital room because he still ended up there with a huge bruise on his chest. I got to tell you something. I didn't tell the other services, but uh, right after this first service this morning, a lady came up to me and said, I think that was my dad. My dad was shot right in the chest, and I know him, Cliff. I happen to know him. Um, he was shot right in the chest. And he was wearing his bulletproof vest, and he ended up at the California hospital. But he was fine because he was wearing his vest. Well, several years later, in fact, I can tell you the exact date. It's June 22nd, 1987. I got home from work, turned on the television set. I was single at the time. It was breaking news. A young LAPD officer had been shot and killed by a juvenile suspect on the streets of Pacoima. His name was James Pagliotti. He was only 28 years old. As I remember it, Officer Pagliotti saw a drug deal. He was working plain clothes. He was in an undercover, unmarked car. He saw a drug deal going down. So he got out of his car and approached the suspect. The suspect pulled out a gun and shot Officer Pagliotti right in the chest. And he died instantly. 28 years old. The reason I never forgot that story was because as the reporter was relaying the story, I was wondering, what about his vest? And wouldn't you know it, at the close of her broadcast, she said, she made a point of saying, the young officer had his bulletproof vest. His, he did, was not wearing his bulletproof vest, and it was in the trunk of his car. It hit me like a ton of bricks. 
In all likelihood, James Pagliotti believed in the vest. In all likelihood, he believed that it worked. In all likelihood, he believed that it could stop a round and save his life. The problem was he didn't take that belief in the vest to a point of commitment by putting it on. And that's why he died. See, the story reminds me of John 1.12 in the Bible. John 12, 1.12 says this, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. But as many as received Jesus, to them God gave the right to become children of God. You know, this verse says that the only way for you to become a child of God is by fiducia, by taking your belief in Christ to a point of commitment by receiving him, like putting on a vest. Have you done that? Maybe you come to church and you say, oh yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in God. That's why I'm here. I go to church, right? I have to be a Christian because I go to church and I believe in God. But this verse is saying that doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven. That doesn't mean you're a child of God. This verse is saying you're not a child of God until you receive him and you take your belief in him to a point of commitment by making a commitment to him. See, the problem with Templeton was that he failed when it came to notitia, a census, and fiducia. His faith was built on sand and that's why it crashed and burned like a house that's made out of sticks and straw. And if you're wondering where I got Notitia, census, and fiducia. It was introduced to us hundreds of years ago by Protestant reformers like Calvin and Tyndale and Martin Luther, who recognized that true biblical faith, true biblical faith is, is more than just saying, I believe. It is having the right content. It is having conviction that that content is true and it is making a commitment to it. I hope that will be you. I hope that will be all of us. We can't simply go around saying, I believe in God and think you're going to go to heaven, right? That's not faith built on the rock, right? We need to build our faith on Petra, right? We need to know this book inside and out. We need to study it. And then we need to live it out. We need to put it into practice. We need to ask God to give us the conviction that it's true so that will move us to action. We need to do what it says, So I hope that you'll do that. I hope you'll take your faith in him to a point of commitment. It all starts with you. It all starts with me. That's where bodybuilding begins. And if we do that, when the storms come, when the big bad wolf shows up and he tries to huff and puff and blow our house down, he won't succeed. And our faith in our house will stand. Amen? Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Hey, this morning, I want to give you an opportunity just to say whatever it is that you need to say to God. Maybe you came here today and your faith is just kind of wishy-washy. Maybe you've been tempted by the things of this world. Maybe you've been buffeted by storm after storm after storm and you wonder whether God is real and you're kind of half tempted to run from God rather than to him. Why don't you just get things right and say, God, please forgive me. 
I believe. I commit myself to you. Maybe you come to church, maybe you watch online, and you believe. Oh, I believe in God. But you've never take your, taken your belief in Him to a point of commitment. Let today be the day you take it to a point of commitment. And to do that, all you need to do is tell Him, God, I receive you. I believe you and I receive you, Jesus, into my life. I receive what you did for me. I receive that you died on the cross for me. I receive that you were raised from the dead. Come into my life. Forgive me my sins. Give me the gift of eternal life. Say that to him. And you can know for sure that you will go to heaven and that you'll be a child of God. Father, we thank you for your word and for this amazing story. It just reminds us, God, thank you for reminding us that our faith, so often because it's built on straw or because it's built on sand, it doesn't stand when difficulties arise, when temptation arises. And Father, it just breaks our hearts that so many have wandered away from the faith. Father, I want to pray for all those that have walked away from the faith. God, bring them back. Just as you once once touched them, bring them back. Stir in their hearts. And Father, as for all of us, Father, help us to be more committed than we ever have to bodybuilding, to building up our own faith, to being people of your word, people who read your word, who study your word, who know your word, who know the truth, so that when when we hear error, we'll recognize it immediately. And Father, let us not rest there, but give each one of us a conviction that your word is truth, and let that move us to action. Let that move us to how we live our lives. God, we commend ourselves to you in a fresh new way today. And we do all these things, Father, because of you, Jesus, because of what you did. It was your ultimate sacrifice on a cross that makes our faith even possible. So we thank you, Lord. Do a work in us. Give us a faith that will stand against anything that comes against us. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.